Our Father, we again thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. We again thank you for your word and pray that you would continue to grant us understanding, especially into to some of these uh, seemingly more complicated, difficult issues of life. And Father, we desire to be your servants, to be ready, equipped with your word, with the wisdom of your word, to know how to to love your people and to make much of Christ through them. And so we ask that you would use this to that end. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so as you can see, our focus for this session is going to be on crisis counseling. Um, We're going to uh, take a look at at various sources of crisis. And so for some, as we think of crisis, it may be like I experienced this past spring when I got up in the morning, which is always difficult to do in and of itself for most of us, right? But you get up and... You know, you look forward to the automatic coffee pot that's got the coffee ready for you. And you get in there and you grab the canister to pour into your cup and there's no coffee. You forgot to turn it on. In a sense, that's almost a crisis. (laughs) But it gets worse. So this happened, and then uh, I think maybe the next day I go in to uh, get my coffee actually got out of bed looking forward to coffee to get me going and uh, go in there to again get the coffee. And this time I did turn it on. But I forgot to put water in the canister. So again, no coffee. Not too long after that, I uh, got it turned on, automatic for the morning, had the water in there, then go back in. I forgot the coffee grounds. As I'm drinking this water, this is really bad. It tastes like water. Okay, not well. It gets better. Let's go in one morning. I had put the water, all 12 cups, filled up the canister. Got the coffee grinds in there. That's good. Set it. But I forgot one important element. No, it was plugged in. It was turned on. There was no coffee pot. Now, with mine, that's an issue, because when I reached to grab the coffee pot, I also noticed, as the coffee pot wasn't there, that my feet were soggy and warm. (laughs) And so all 12 cups had gone through the coffee grinds all over my counter, down the cabinets, and all over the floor. And so not only did I not have coffee to drink, I was standing in my coffee. A straw, straw, yes. (laughs) So you could call that a crisis, right? Yeah, probably not. And I'll blame it on COVID. This was still in the recovery period of COVID. So it was COVID, had a birthday about the same time period. Um, But no, those are are little things in life. Um, Some people might consider those crisis. You might know people, on the other hand, who uh, seem to live in a crisis all the time. They can take a normal routine thing in life, dentist appointment perhaps, and uh, it's, it's a crisis. Everything's a crisis. That's really not what we're talking about today. Okay, we're going to talk about something much deeper, something with uh, much greater consequences than uh, soggy coffee socks in the morning. Um, and those are more of a real-life crisis. Let's start out by defining crisis. What do we really have in mind as we think about crisis? So this is from Wayne Mack. It says, a crisis is a state of intense distress which results when a person faces any problem or problems that he thinks must be resolved immediately. 
but perceives no satisfactory solution to that problem. Okay, that would be a definition of a crisis. Jay Adams defines it this way. Any situation into which God has led the counselee that either now or later demands decisive action that will have significant consequences. And so Jay Adams goes on to describe a crisis as a seemingly certain, severe, and sudden situation that demands change. Okay, in other words, it's something that's sudden. It's not something that you necessarily planned for. It's not something you anticipated. Now, for those of you who, who live in the area, uh, you may remember back to 2013, uh, to the tornado that struck uh, just south of, of Granbury here, and there were some fatalities and a lot of damage that was done. I believe it went through a mobile home park and uh, wiped out that. And so certainly there was, there was a crisis there. Um, it demanded a decision. Where are we seek shelter? Tornado's coming. What are we going to do? Where are we going to find shelter? Um, there was a crisis at hand. It's something that could not have been avoided. Okay, it was something that was present. It was a reality, and it was going to take place. And my family, um, our first home in Glenrose was was a mobile home. And uh, in light of the tornadoes, that one and some others that were close to the area, it, it made me think about if there's a tornado coming. Um, what am I going to do? I mean, that would be a crisis, right? I mean, I lived in a mobile home, right? But the mobile home is not fast enough to get out of the way of a tornado. It's not that mobile. And so if a tornado comes, I was trying to think of the scenarios, what can I do? I could get a box flan and try to blow it into my neighbor's yard, right? Well, one, that wouldn't work, and it wouldn't be very neighborly to, uh, to blow the tornado into their house. That's not really an option. Um, but it demands a decisive action. Um, something has to take place. And it causes change. Uh, if a loved one is severely injured or killed in a tornado, car wreck, uh, whatever that may be, there's going to be significant life changes. There's going to be a sense of crisis. It's sudden. Uh, decisions have to be made. And, you know, if you think about a, you know, especially like a tornado, um, if it comes and you don't have house insurance, not only might you lose your house, but you're also going to be in a financial crisis because you probably just lost most of what you had invested. And so a crisis is a situation that often is associated with distress. And so let's think through some examples of crisis. Um, What are some examples of crisis that might lead to counseling opportunities? So perhaps some of you have done some counseling. What have been some some crisis that uh, has given you an opportunity to help another person out with? Shooting at a high school. Oh, yeah. There's a, a big crisis situation. Sudden death of a spouse. Or even a slow death of a spouse. Both of those are crisis situations. Good. What else? Divorce. Divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly domestic violence. Yeah, years ago I had a uh, lady not in our church but affiliated with our church knew who we were. Um, she was out of town. Apparently she just been on the phone with her husband, and uh, from everything she could gather, he was suicidal and was was asking for immediate intervention. And so that was a crisis situation. In that particular situation. Um, I was able to get his number, call him, tell him who I was, and asked if he would meet at the local restaurant. 
And uh, it actually is a crisis situation where he very much was suicidal, uh, but he was willing to, to meet up and uh, had a good conversation that day. And the next day, he trusted his life to the Lord. And in the midst of that crisis, he came to Christ. And so that's part of what we want to seek to do in crisis situations is to point them to Christ. This, In this instance, a saving way. This guy was literally despairing of life and was looking at taking his life. Um, but sometimes you're dealing with believers as well. And we want to help them to look to Christ in the midst of their crisis. So what does that involvement look like? Open your Bibles to um, Esther chapter 3. And here we have a good example of a crisis. And we're going to look at this one a little bit more in depth. Uh, but I, I found this very, very helpful. Um, I think it was either uh, I think it was Keith Palmer, or Randy Patton, or somebody went through this text years ago, and I thought this was a good example for us today as we consider crisis counseling. And so, in the book of Esther, uh, many of the Jews remained in exile under the the Persian um, rule. Of course, Esther, um, who was beautiful, was selected to be the king's wife. Uh, during this time, and as the narrative goes, you remember the wicked uh, Haman, um, he opposed Mordecai, he had uh, demanded that Mordecai bow down to him, pay him honor, Mordecai refused, long story short, um, Haman then seeks to um, not only have Mordecai killed, but also all of the Jews, and so this is a, a pretty big crisis now, right, and and so we see this play out. In fact, Haman goes to the king and he offers him what would be equivalent to 750,000 pounds of silver. Okay? So just imagine the king's, your servant coming up. Um, I'll give you 750,000. It's like 10,000 talents, which I think is equivalent to 750,000 pounds of silver. If you will let me um, kill, the, kill these people. These people aren't obeying your laws, by the way. And, and I'll give you all of this if you let me do this. Well, the king agrees. And so there's this edict that's put forth. And so in Esther chapter 3, uh, verse 13, kind of an outline of this, we see an example of crisis here. Uh, looking at verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, do you think this caused a crisis amongst the Jews? <laughs> it certainly did. And so here we have a very difficult situation um, for not only Mordecai, not only for Esther, but for all the Jews as well. And so looking at chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, <clears throat> we have here also a highly emotional reaction. Okay, in the midst of this distress, there's uh, emotional involvement. Uh, one, uh, chapter four, verse one, verse three. Mordecai learned all that he or all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Verse three. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and action and ashes. So here we have a highly emotional reaction to this crisis that is at hand. Um, third, so second, a highly emotional reaction. Third, a sense of urgency to take action. A sense of urgency to take action. Verse four, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And look down at verse eight. 
Mordecai commanded her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so what was her immediate reaction here? Well, we see that in the emotion of the crisis, um, we don't see her praying. We don't see her immediately complying with Mordecai's request to, to go to the king. Uh, verse 9 indicates, rather, a temptation for rash action or reaction. So looking at uh, verse 11, we see here Esther's self-preserving response to Mordecai's request. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to put to death, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And so in these verses, we see that rather than using her God-given position to appeal for the lives of the people, Esther's concerned about her own safety. If she goes into the king, then unless he grants this pardon, then by the law, he must kill me for coming into the king's presence uninvited. And so she's concerned primarily about her own safety before the king. And then in verses 13 through 14, Mordecai challenges Esther with this. And we have a, a limited or distorted perspective of um, the situation here. Verse 13 and 14, Mordecai replies to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, that familiar phrase for such a time as this. And indeed, this was in God's providence. Mordecai was trusting in God and in his providence and in his goodness. And he saw that Esther had been placed there in God's providence for such a time as this. And so he calls her to respond accordingly. And so looking um, back then to chapter 3, verse 15, we also see in this crisis a sense of despair or uh, perplexity. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and a decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king of Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And so in the midst of all this, what is God's involvement? Where is God in the midst of this? I mean, these are God's people. And there's an edict that's been put forth that all of them should be eliminated, destroyed, killed. Where is God in the midst of all this? And so God has made a covenant with his people. And we see that as a covenant God, um, he keeps his covenant. And Mordecai was seeking to trust the Lord in that. And so as we see how this plays out, um, the night before Queen Esther was to throw this party um, for the king and expose Haman, do you remember what happens to the king? He's restless and he can't sleep. And what does he call for? Yep, he calls for the book, um, the memorable deeds to be read. And uh, what did he just so happen to read? Exactly. And so in God's providence, he read the account of Mordecai, who Haman was about to have killed along with all the Jews. 
He read the account of Mordecai who had uh, foiled this plot to have the king killed. And so the tables are turned. And so what does the king then have Haman do with Mordecai? Haman's about to have him killed. Yes, the king tells Haman that you must honor Mordecai. Can you imagine? (laughs) You know, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign in all things. And so you know how the story goes. Um, After that, you know, Haman had built the, the hanging area for Mordecai where he was going to have him killed. Well, who winds up being hung there? Yeah, and instead of all the Jews being annihilated... Who winds up being killed? Amen and the enemies of the Jews. Yeah. And so again, um, we have a crisis situation here. And we have Esther, who did eventually trust the Lord, who went before the king. She did get the pardon that she needed. She throws this banquet and um, this, this whole crisis is then resolved in God's way, in God's time and it's just beautiful to see uh, the providence of god there and so throughout the scriptures we see lots of examples of people in crisis right i mean you start from genesis it's it's all the way through there's crisis throughout the bible lots and lots of illustrations Uh, many of those um we can see in the psalms there are a lot of them in the psalms we don't have details of all those crises but we do certainly have very real afflictions and sufferings and things that are taking place there, and people are looking to the Lord in the midst of those crises, um, and the Lord is sovereign over all those. In the New Testament, um, some of the letters are written um, by people or two people who are in crisis situations. Can you think of one in particular? In the New Testament? Yeah, yeah, so Paul's in prison, since there's a crisis there. What about some the people of God that are being persecuted? Yeah, Stephen, yes, there's a crisis. What about a, a whole letter devoted to people in a crisis situation in a sense? Okay, yeah, there was a crisis in the church in Corinthians for sure. Sin crisis. Yeah, the suffering in Peter, right? And so the believers under much persecution, a lot of crisis, if you will, and persecution crisis, those Things kind of go hand in hand. A lot of difficult. Some of these things were sudden. Many of them were severe. They were life-changing in, in various ways. And yet, Peter is written to encourage these people, uh, largely who underwent crisis and persecution. And so, we see crisis throughout the scriptures in various places. And the Bible also then instructs us in the midst of those crises. I think it's important as we work with people in crisis to understand um, that nothing's wasted. Um, that crisis can be sanctified and God is sovereign over all things. And so we want to encourage them um, in the midst of those crises to, to look to, to Christ, to look to the cross, to look to the cross which is empty, to look to the grave which is empty, and to look at the one who has ascended into heaven and who is at the right hand of the Father. And so that's mainly what we want to do that's the ultimate goal of what we want to do in helping those as with all counseling those who are in crisis to look to christ colossians 117 says it's christ whom all things hold together okay in a crisis what's it feel like everything's falling apart okay but ultimately in christ all things hold together and so christ must be at the center of our crisis counseling 
And so in the midst of a crisis, there's great comfort to be found in knowing that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest. Um, If you have your Bibles, open them to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 17. Um, And we're going to have time to, to read through all of this, but maybe 17 and 18, where we see Christ, the one who holds all things together. He came and he dwelt amongst his creation a creation that's characterized by chaos, that's characterized by confusion, that's characterized by suffering and sin. And yet Hebrews two seventeen and 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, and Christ suffered beyond our comprehension, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, and then earlier today we talked about Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews 4, 14, and 16. So turn over a page there. Uh, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is a crisis a time of need? And where are we to go? To Christ. To look to Him. The one who is upon the throne, go before him in the throne of grace and throw ourselves at his mercy. And so what do we learn from these verses? Well, in part, Christ is involved with his people. That's important to know in the midst of a crisis. He met our greatest need ultimately at the cross. Um, He freely offered himself as a sinless sacrifice upon the cross. What is ultimately our greatest crisis? Yeah, it's our salvation that a just and holy God would pour out his wrath upon us, that's a a cosmic crisis. And yet Christ has come to reconcile us unto himself, to grant us peace, to grant us forgiveness, to grant us reconciliation. And not only does he grant that to us, but also he is with us through the crisis that we will experience upon this earth. And aren't you glad that in the life to come, when we're with him, there will be no more crisis but until then guess what you're going to experience crisis those you work with are going to experience crisis and so we need to make sure we keep our eyes fixed upon christ in the midst of our crisis so second christ makes continual intercession for us romans 8 34 who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us. What is Christ doing in his priesthood, even in the midst of our crisis? He is interceding for us. That's important to, to keep in mind. Next, Christ supplies all that we need in the midst of the crisis. Think about Paul. <laughs> Paul had a pretty rough life, did he not? I mean, beaten multiple times, stoned, shipwrecked, bit by a snake, you know, imprisoned, uh, a lot of different things, left for dead a few times. Um, and yet, what's Paul do? I've learned the secret of being content. 
in any and every circumstance. How could he say that? Who's greater than his crisis? Christ. Who's with him in his crisis? Christ. His confidence is in Christ, who will supply his every need according to his glorious riches, right? And so Paul's focus, even in the crisis, is on Christ. And therefore, he's able to rejoice, rejoice, even in the midst of his crisis. And so crisis is an opportunity to help people look to God and to bring glory to his name. Okay? Easier said than done, right? Especially in the midst of the crisis. But we want to encourage them to continue to look to Christ and to seek to glorify his name. And so in God's providence, the question, why God, why this, um, finds rest in knowing that God is in control. He's in control of all things. And what's the promise that he has made? All things work together for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. And what's that good? Yeah, that he would make us more like Christ, more into the image of Christ. And so crisis are, in essence, the fiery furnace that burn away the impurities, that cause us to see more of our need for Christ, to loosen our grip on the things of this earth that are temporal, and to look forward to that which is eternal. And so God uses these in in various ways. Again, we don't say that in a trite manner, um, in a flippant manner, um, but these are biblical truths that we have hope. I think it's Romans 18... Uh, 8.17 it talks about uh, the present situation not being worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us not even worth comparing Um, so light momentary afflictions don't feel very light momentary sometimes do they but what is to come the eternal way to glory that's to be revealed to us and so having an eternal mindset in the midst of those looking to Christ in all things And so when there's crisis, there's some choices that are made. Ultimately, it comes down to two choices. And so people in crisis are going to do one of two things. Um, Either they're going to turn away from God or they're going to turn to God. Okay, so obviously biblical counseling, what do we want to help them do? Turn to God. Okay, but first let's consider how people might turn away from God because it's important that we try to catch what's going on here as, as best as we can. Um, One of those is denying the crisis, not accepting, not believing the truth of what's actually happened. You know, you see this uh, perhaps in counseling financially. Somebody's in a really bad place and they just pretend everything's okay until their house is foreclosed, right? Or their car is taken away or whatever it is, just denying the reality of it. This also happens sometimes in domestic abuse um, where perhaps the abused spouse just because of the shame or whatever else, just wants to pretend it just doesn't exist. Um, or other people know about it, but it's they just try to cover it up. They deny it. This can't really be taking place. Um, so sometimes that's denied. Second, anger. Turning away from God. Sinful anger. And so rather than trusting in God and His providence and in His goodness, the priesthood of Christ, um, some can get angry at God. Robert Jones has an excellent little book. It's called just that, Angry at God. Uh, and it's really good at helping people who, um, in essence, are shaking their fist at God. Why God? Not in a, in a, a humble way, but in an angry way. Um, he says this in that booklet, We want what we want when we want it. And when God does not deliver, we judge Him. Okay? 
And so people in crisis can turn away from God. Lord, you are sovereign. You could have prevented this. Lord, I thought you were good. Why did this happen? This isn't what I wanted. And so they can get sinfully angry um, and even ultimately angry at God. Another way people might respond is catastrophic thinking. Proverbs fourteen twelve, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Catastrophic thinking. Specifically in marriage crisis, I see this way more often than I would like. You know, one spouse leaves the other spouse. Um, the the spouse that's been left, um, well, it depends on the situation. But you have one spouse who seeks to self-preserve him or herself in the marriage. And they do things according to human wisdom. They seek to manipulate and we're trying to get things back, and all they're really doing is pushing the other person further and further away. It's catastrophic thinking. It's selfish thinking. They believe they're in control. If they exhort enough hatred, verbal abuse, manipulation, whatever it is, then somehow this marriage is going to be restored, and this person's just going to love them again. That just doesn't make any sense. But that's where people get to catastrophic thinking. They add crisis to the crisis. Disorientation. Sometimes people become so overwhelmed that they just can't think straight or see the situation clearly, okay? Somebody just lost a loved one in a car wreck, all right? Just a sudden situation or whatever the crisis may be, they're just disoriented. They, they can't really see up from down. They're not at a place to even make decisions for themselves. Um, they need people to come alongside and to think and to help them accordingly. Self-destruction. Um, Some try to uh, override emotional pain, like we talked about earlier, by inflicting self-pain, self-harm. Yes, there's a picture that (laughs) depicts that, all right? They uh, try to remedy things for themselves, and they're just not thinking rightly in the midst of that. Uh, Sometimes um, worry will so grip a person that uh, they don't deal with worry, anxiety biblically, and they'll experience panic attacks and, and various other things. Um, and so, again, self-destruction can take place um, when a person looks further and further away from God. Ultimate example of self-destruction, again, suicide. Okay, they've turned away from God. They've turned away from a living hope. Therefore, they have no hope in which they are living, and they'll seek to take their own lives. And so here's another example um, where we have the opportunity to come in and, and point them back towards a living hope. A feeling guilty but not addressing it, okay? Um, That can be uh, another instance where people turn away from God. Um, Guilt needs to be dealt with biblically if there is real guilt there. Uh, Otherwise, it leads to further complicating issues, right? And so people will um, create more guilt. Another one, self-preoccupation. Again, this can often be seen in, in a marriage crisis like the ones I just mentioned where... They're so consumed about preserving what they want rather than glorifying God and being obedient um, to God in whatever role they have in that marriage. They become consumed with themselves. So when crisis come, people either try to handle things their own or Psalm 121, 1 through 2 becomes very personal. And this is where we want to guide them in biblical counseling. Psalm 121, 1 through 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so in the midst of the crisis, we want to help them lift their eyes up to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
the one who upholds all things. And so turning away from God in crisis, um, rather than turning away from God in crisis, we want to encourage others then to turn to God. Okay, again, that's what biblical counseling is all about. We want to help them in doing so to trust God. And so again, in the Psalms, what do we see? We have multiple situations of people under great affliction, uh, emotional turmoil. Um, and yet in the Psalms, we see them in the midst of all these things, again, lift their eyes to the maker of heaven and earth and begin to praise him and acknowledge who he is in his goodness. And so they trust God in the midst of that crisis. Uh, so we want to encourage them with uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Right, your advanced track. Everybody have that one down? <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Wow, that's good. I think you all get a sticker for that. <laughs> okay. Now that's a little bit easier to memorize and say than to do, especially when you're in a crisis. Okay, but we want to encourage them with that very thing to trust in the Lord with all your heart in the midst of this. He ultimately will make your path straight. Right now, there seems like no pathway forward or it's a difficult path forward, uh, but he will make it straight for his purposes. Jerry Bridges says that trusting God is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. And so in those crises, we want to encourage others to, to trust God. We do that by, trust, by encouraging them to accept the truth through the lens of his sovereign care. All right, we've already mentioned Romans 8, 28. Um, and this again is a passage, and you've heard this over and over again. But do we really believe this? that all things work together for the good. Do you really believe that for yourself? Because if not, are we really going to encourage our counselees to believe that in their own lives? And so this is our own struggle, right? In our own lives. All things, really all things, this? How is this going to work together for the good? And what do we need to do in the midst of it? Look to Christ. Because in the midst of this, that's what he calls us to do. That's what he's about doing. He's preparing us to be with him for all of eternity even through the midst of a crisis. Romans 8.39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we think about this, what did Christ do upon the cross? He shed his own blood, right? He laid down his life. How precious are we in his sight? We are his possession. He has purchased us through his death, through his own shed blood. And so the crisis we go through are not because he doesn't love us. It's because he loves us. And he's accomplishing something greater than what we're able to perhaps perceive in the midst of that crisis. In fact, even this life, we may not fully perceive it. We may not even understand it hardly at all. But do we believe that God is faithful? And do we believe that all things ultimately work together for the good? And so again, it comes back down to, to trusting God in the midst of all things. I think it was, uh, it was a journal, Biblical Counseling, years ago. I forget who wrote this. But they said, Everything we experience is already filtered through the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. Everything we experience is already filtered through the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. So think about Job. 
Right? Was God caught off guard by what happened to Job? Was that a crisis? <laughs> yeah, in a very limited period of time, he literally lost everything, including his health. The only thing he kept was his life. Yeah. All right, so also we want to have a divine perspective in trusting God, turning to God, having a divine perspective in referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, talking about our light and momentary afflictions. Um, A.W. Pink gives us an encouraging word when he says this, afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. Let's get things back in perspective, right? What do we really deserve? Because of our sin and the wrath of an infinitely holy God. Afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Another perspective we need to keep in mind. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. We can lose sight of that in the midst of of suffering and crisis. And so we want to help others turn to God by resting in Him and being calm in Him, having a quiet heart. So Philippians 4, 4 4-7. Here's Paul. Where is he again in Philippians? He's in prison. And so think through this verse. Um, It says, Rejoice in the Lord. When? Except in crisis. Rejoice in the Lord always, just in case we didn't get it. While he's in prison, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. Even in the midst of crisis, we're supposed to be reasonable? What? Wait, who's at hand? The Lord. If the Lord is with us, we're more than conquerors. We've got everything we need in Him. All things work together for the good. A crisis, it may not seem like that. It may not feel like that. But if the Lord is at hand, then we're called to be reasonable. And even in the crisis, we can rejoice. That's easier said than done, right? But that's the truth. Yeah. That's really important for our testimony. Yes. Other people. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a really good point. We'll get to that a little bit. In the midst of crisis, our testimony is huge. Right? If you're the goody-goody Christian on Sundays, but there's a crisis in your life and you act like everybody else, what does that say about Christ? Yeah. And so it's oftentimes in the fire that we see who really is uh, upholding us and we see who's really worthy to live for. In fact, think of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Was there a crisis there? Yeah, was God glorified in the midst of that crisis as they trusted in Him? Yeah, certainly. All right, listen to these words by Samuel Rutherford. He said, The secret formula of the saints, when I am in the cellar of affliction, when I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Read that again. 
I'm in the cellar of affliction. And so think of being in a dark, dingy basement. All right? What's, I guess, I'm not a wine drinker. I'm really into wine. But wine takes time to get better, right? It gets better with time. I've heard that's the case. I really don't know. But uh, when you're in the, the dark times, wine goes through this process of becoming better and better. And likewise, as we go through the process of this life and trials and tribulations, we become more and more like Christ. And so in the midst of those things, we should look for what um, God is doing. And He is making us more like Christ in the midst of those adversities. And so number five, seeking to glorify God in the crisis. We want them to turn to God and we want to help them to glorify God in the crisis. And so again, there is perhaps no greater platform to proclaim the love of God uh, than when we are at peace with God in the midst of crisis. And I think through examples on examples of people who have so wonderfully demonstrated this, just uh, over a year ago, we had an individual who sat right over there a few years ago in this class, uh, Mark Phillips, who got cancer in January, was gone in June. The young guy, relatively speaking, I guess, but was young and uh, went through that. But uh, they honored the Lord through that. They trusted him through that. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. And a lot of lives have been impacted because of that. Um, and so as in the midst of those crises, as we trust in God, there's a testimony that goes forth that is beautiful, that is glorious. Uh, years ago... Um, Goodness, this would have been probably about 15 years ago. Uh, I went to a family conference in Arizona. We had Grace, our oldest daughter. Uh, we're expecting a, a second child. And uh, we get there to the, the conference, this family conference. And Lara starts having some, some issues with the pregnancy. So we go in and uh, we find out there's no heartbeat. And so, you know, I, like David, began praying and fasting, seeking the Lord during that time, and, you know, praying basically that the, the machine was wrong, <laughs> that it that misread, that there really was. And they said there was some possibility of that, so I clung to that. And yet, a few days later, we found ourselves in the emergency room, um, complications from a miscarriage. And uh, through that, the Lord was so good as we looked at him and trusted in him. Uh, in fact, we had the opportunity to uh, have a funeral service for we named her Joy because the Lord was our joy in the midst of, of that struggle. And we gathered, of course, we're away from our church home, Arizona, um, gathered the family around and we had our own little funeral service and uh, viewed that as an opportunity to proclaim the, God, the Lord's goodness, the gospel, to Lara's family, many of which who are not believers. And so looked at how, how do I bring glory to God in the midst of this? And he was certainly our, our help, our comfort um, in the midst of that struggle. And when we got back, um, first Sunday back to GCC, I remember staying on the front row and the song that was played, um, that we sang that morning was this. And I don't know if I put the lyrics. The lyrics are there for you, part of it. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup and drinking. May bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. 
My God is true, each morn anew, yet sweet or sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. And so all four verses of this were just so beautiful, just talking about in the midst of our crisis, in the midst of our difficulties, the Lord's goodness and how he uses all these things in glorious ways. Whatever my God ordains is right. Do we really believe that? And we want to help our counselees know that and believe that as well. Wonderful, wonderful hymn to go back and encourage even those in crisis to be able to, to sing and to worship with. And so we seek to glorify God. We encourage them to glorify God in the midst of the crisis. And again, where did the greatest good take place in all of history? In the very sense, at the greatest crisis, if you want to call it that, the only perfect man who ever lived was falsely accused and, and, and murdered at the cross. Um, and so there was a sense of crisis, but the greatest good came out of that according to God's definite plan. It's number five, crisis considerations. Crisis considerations, things to keep in mind, how crisis affect people. Um, people will often face secondary issues as a result of a crisis situation. It can be complicating issues that come out of that. Some will have difficulty making choices, perhaps in light of, of the shock of whatever the crisis may be. They're just, again, disoriented, maybe extreme emotions. Another thing people are going in crisis is fatigue. Um, someone trying to take care of someone else, a family member recovering from a, a car wreck or some kind of horrific injury, um, just get worn out. If they're in the hospital and they're eating hospital food and they're sleeping in a hospital bed, um, they're probably going to become fatigued. And so these are secondary issues that can come out of a crisis situation. Extreme dependence upon others. Uh, maybe they're just giving up and and... Literally, everybody has to do everything for them, even though perhaps they're physically capable of doing that can be a, another issue. Uh, physical symptoms that can be experienced through crisis situations. Some people just stop eating and lose a lot of weight, unhealthy. Therefore, that affects other aspects, right? Your body and soul, if you don't care, take care of your body, it's going to affect your, your soul, your ability, uh, in a sense, to cling uh, to the Lord. Um, other things, you know, weight gain. Some people just the opposite. Rather than not eating, they find their comfort in food and will just eat um, excessively. Uh, again, not helpful to the situation. Sleep problems. Uh, some people um, have nightmares depending on the situation or they're just so anxious they just can't sleep. Their mind just won't shut down. They're just on this constant adrenaline rush in the midst of crisis. Uh, feeling disorganized and unproductive. Um, you know, if a tornado takes your home away and you're used to getting up and standing in your coffee rather than drinking it <laughs> and, uh, you know, used to your routine, your routine's gone and you're a structured person and it's just all gone. Um, life is different. And so there's a sense of how do I be productive? Um, sometimes hallucinations associated with lack of sleep or other physical factors. And this is important in the midst of extreme crisis. If somebody doesn't get sleep for more than 48 hours or so, they can begin to hallucinate and all sorts of other you know, crazy things begin to take place. And so in the midst of crisis, um, you see some of those things as well. Uh, substance abuse, 
an attempt to, again, escape from the physical or emotional pain of whatever happened in the midst of the crisis. Some people will turn to drugs, will turn to alcohol um, to try to deal with that. Greater susceptibility to temptation um, with the various sins. Um, and an example of this, you know, if, if a spouse leaves, um, the, the one then may go to a bar to try to drown out their their emotional pain or whatever else, well, is a bar a place that a person in crisis ought to really go to? There's just going to be more temptations there, right? And so they may go places that will only lead to further things. Spiritual decline, um, in the midst of crisis, neglecting the spiritual disciplines. Uh, they used to have a normal routine, but now that's gone. And so we want to encourage them in the midst of the crisis, come alongside them and help them as we can to, uh, to be back in the Word and to encourage them to look to the Lord. Um, enhanced awareness of past memories or feelings um, can be another uh, issue that comes up. Reappearance of unresolved conflicts or problems. So maybe you have a, a loved one die and things just were never reconciled with that individual and now the opportunity to do that with that individual is, is gone. Um, it's another complicating problem. Uh, perception of loss or potential loss. Again, a marriage separation or whatever it may be, um, what if, what if, what if, what if. And they begin to play those things. Those things begin to consume them. They become overly anxious in light of what's happened. Um, that can be a possibility. And then greater receptivity to help from others. And so sometimes in the midst of crisis, uh, people who maybe before wouldn't reach out for help are now willing to reach out for help. And you get an opportunity there that you might not have had before. And so again, that's where we want to come alongside and to seek to, to help them. In fact, even this, this last week, had a young lady walk into my office <clears throat> and uh, a cousin of hers um, had had uh, her baby die. She was two weeks from her due date. And apparently there was some complication with the baby inside and the baby died. And crisis situation here, right? Um, an opportunity, though they were, didn't live too close to the church, we had an opportunity to get involved and to try to connect them to a church and get them... Uh, not just tangible help with meals, which our church helped out with and got another church involved in, but also somebody to go and, and share the gospel with them and the hope of the gospel in the midst of that crisis situation. And so the opportunities are, are all around us. So how do we approach then these people? Crisis counseling, right? Here's the nuts and the bolts, some practical wisdom from the scriptures, general guidelines for counseling people in crisis. One, listen carefully to their concerns. Listen carefully to their concerns. Job's friends were a great support. Great support. Until they started talking. <laughs> right? And so um, we need to be sensitive to what's going on. Listen carefully to, to um, them, to how they're processing things, to where they're at. Second, use the toolbox, toolbox approach rather than the formula approach. In, in other words, um, really seek to understand the situation and then try to pull together the best way to help them. There really isn't just a set one, two, three when there's a crisis situation. One, because a lot of crises are different. And so it's just a matter of prayerfully discerning what does this person need first and foremost. Now, biblical counseling, that's what we want to do. A crisis situation, are you going to first thing pull out your Bible and start giving them principles for living through a crisis? Or are you going to give them a hug? Or 
or help them in some practical way. Yeah. And so the opening the Bible with them is probably in a real crisis situation, probably isn't going to take place right away. Now, you may open the Bible and pray a scripture over them, but that's probably going to be about as much as up front. You just need to discern where they're at and go from there. You're not going to be doing formal counseling in a, in a real crisis situation, usually, depending on the crisis. Um, next, be genuinely compassionate. Um, compassion involves seeing the other person's problems and getting involved in them. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Want to also encourage them to talk about their problem. Now, oftentimes this helps them process it and actually kind of accept the reality of what has happened or is happening and see what they're thinking and then also then help reorient their thoughts towards Christ and the truths of his word in the midst of that. So we want them to talk about their problems in part to see how they're processing. Next, diagnose the problem uh, biblically. Um, and again, this is true in any counseling scenario. Uh, we want to make sure we don't misinterpret the crisis or we don't add to the crisis. Um, and so we want to make sure we understand the facts of what is really going on, who's involved, what are the needs, those types of things. Um, also, of course, in all situations, give them hope. Um, the hope may not be based upon their circumstances, right? Um, the hope is based upon Christ and the one who is with them in the midst of their circumstances. And so the hope is that he will uphold them, though everything else has fallen apart, though they may not be holding on to that loved one anymore or whatever it may be, but the hope of the gospel in Christ. And so give them biblical hope. We also want to give them direction at the appropriate time. And so maybe we need to... Um, help them perceive their, their problem from a biblical perspective if they're viewing it otherwise. Um, you know, again, at some point, you know, we can go to different passages. Probably not your first gathering with them, but, you know, unpack the life of Joseph with them. You know, get to Genesis fifty twenty. Um, what others intended for evil, you know, God intended for, for good. There is ultimate good that will come out of of this, you may not be able to see it right now. Job or Joseph couldn't see it for a long time, um, but there was much good that came out of of that suffering, and the Lord can do the same. Next, help them face and conquer their fears. Um, help them face and conquer their fears. What can we do in Christ? All things. Okay, they may think, I just can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, okay? Maybe they've lost a loved one that they've lived with for 50-something years. I just can't go on. Um, in Christ, there's a strength to go on, right? And we need to remember that though your spouse may not be here, Christ is. And let's look to him for, for the strength. Help them correct wrong thinking, whatever that may be in the midst of the crisis. Um, a lot of times they're... Their hope is wrong. Their methodology of dealing with the situation is wrong. It's only going to make things worse. Um, it may not seem loving to help correct them in the midst of a crisis when they're emotionally at a difficult point. But if the path they're on is going to make things worse and worse, then we want to lovingly try to help them see that and offer them a good alternative and help them to walk in that alternative. Oftentimes, one crisis that not de dealt with well leads to another crisis and another crisis. And the devastation that initially, though painful, it was limited, 
can become a whole lot worse if we um, don't help correct thinking where it needs to be corrected. Help them understand how they can trust and obey God um, by looking to Him to solve their problems uh, and His Word, what it supplies there. Help them see biblical problem solving and how to implement them. Um, pray for them and with them. Help them learn how to pray about the problem biblically. You know, one of the things I talked about Mark Phillips that was so encouraging is, is they suffered through those five months of cancer is that many people from the church would just say, I'm praying this passage for you. I'm praying this verse for you. And, and Kara took all of those and put them in a journal. And those were the things they ran to when they had a hard time because of the physical pain, emotional pain or whatever else, just studying the Bible for themselves. They would just pick up those verses and be encouraged that God's people were praying these things for them. And so pray for them, pray with them, and help them, likewise, take God's word back to him in prayer. Next, help them understand their personal responsibility for their actions and reactions towards the problem. Uh, This can be especially important, I'm thinking of a marriage crisis, um, where a spouse in light of maybe the other spouse's sin, is acting sinfully, is just complicating things, is they're seeking to fix the problem in their own wisdom. And so again, help them understand their own personal responsibility, what God has called them to do, and be faithful in that. Uh, Help them to see the importance of the body of Christ, uh, people to come alongside and walk with them, help them, pray for them, hold them accountable. Um, Some people in the midst of Christ just want to be left alone. And oftentimes, leaving them alone is the worst thing for them. Uh, they need other people to come alongside, to encourage them, to, to serve them, to help them out in the midst of a crisis. And so seek to arrange that as best as you can. Assist them in evaluating their progress in the crisis. And again, this depends on where you're at with that. But come alongside them in the midst of the crisis. Encourage them as much as you can. Again, encourage them with the scriptures. Uh, we have a living hope. We have a true hope as the Spirit of God works within us and help them prepare for future crisis situations. Um, and so we, for the sake of time, we can't unpack all of these. And again, depending on the crisis situation, some of these are going to be very relevant, beneficial for the immediate crisis. Um, others may not be. But again, in the midst of the crisis, ultimately what are we seeking to do? To point them to... To Christ, okay? And depending on the crisis, and there are many in the world in which we live, we need to seek to, again, get the facts, what has actually happened. Um, how do we then love them according to those facts, to the reality of where things are at? Again, sometimes in crisis situations, we're not going to ask to have a one-hour meeting with them, okay? We're going to come over, and, and we're just going to pray for them. We're going to bring them a meal. We're going to minister to them. We're going to get the church around them, loving them. Um, but at some point, they're going to begin to have those questions. Why God? Or why now? Or, or all those types of things. And that gives us an opportunity to, to go back and to again point them to God and in Christ. He is the one who holds all things together. And, and uh, though this life is full of difficulties, it's full of suffering, we want to help them keep an eye on eternity even as they seek to glorify Christ in the life that they still have left. And so we could say a lot more. Really, this gets in also to the category of suffering, right? How do we help people who are suffering? Um, that can be a part of crisis. And I would encourage you, you know, go back to track one, Stephen Yule, listen to the session on suffering. 
If somebody's in a crisis, that's a really good one to then help them find the hope of the gospel in the midst of, of that. All right. Some resources that are helpful on these issues. Um, Jay Adams has a general principles there that was from way back. I'm not even sure if that's still available anymore. Um, John Babbler has a book out now on crisis counseling. Uh, Babbler has been the chaplain uh, here in Fort Worth, is now in Arkansas at Mid-America in Biblical Counseling, but he is one of the guys um, that's probably got some of the most experience in crisis counseling, whether shootings, whether fires, accidents. Um, he's been involved in a lot of different scenarios, so a good book there to consider in crisis counseling. Um, also, he spoke here in 2015 and uh, did two sessions on crisis counseling that would be very good to listen to as well. So I would encourage you to, to uh, avail yourself to those. All right. Well, we are out of time, so let me pray for us. And if you have any questions, uh, I'm happy to stick around for a little bit, but I know you're probably ready for some more coffee and a quick break. Father, we, uh, we thank you that uh, we have so much in this world in which to praise you, Lord, for the wonderful good things that we get to experience and delight in. But also we praise you for the the tough things that are in our lives because we know that you use these things to cause us to look again to you, to see our dependence upon you. And Father, we pray that in the midst of the crisis that we will face and the crisis that we help others walk through, that we would look to Christ, that we would help them look to Christ. And Father, that uh, we would long all the more for the day when we shall see him as he is. And we know that all the afflictions, the slight and momentary afflictions, the light and momentary afflictions of this world are not even worth comparing to that eternal way of glory that is to be revealed to us. And so help us to keep an eye on eternity, but above all else, keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray that you would grow us in him even as you prepare us. Uh, for whatever affliction we may face, and as we seek to help others through what they will encounter as well. And so I thank you for these people. I thank you for these men and women who desire, Father, to honor you of all of life and to help others to walk with you as well. And we pray now that you bless our conversations. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.